everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hey everyone listening, normally I start with a hi, how are you, but today I've got two guests, so it would be weird if I just did that and they both started answering at the same time, so I'm going to go with one at a time. Um, so first of all, I'll go with Clara. Clara, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you, George? I am good. I have to apologise to you because um, last time I had you on the podcast, I kept calling you Carla, and <laughs> um, the, the other guest here has uh, told me um, and said, I well, she didn't say I need to apologise, but I, I'm I'm taking it as I need to apologise. Oh, I think I've lost um, you there, George. Oh, can you still hear me okay? You're back. I'm back. Okay, we'll leave that in. That's fine. I'm going to go into the, the low Wi-Fi mode and we'll just go from Amazing. there. Um, so, Clara, like I said, uh, I've apologised. I'm probably going to do it again at some point. I'm really sorry. I just, I know a Carla and I know you as Clara, so I just, I think my brain just It happens quite... all the time, so don't worry about it. I'm not offended. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> she, people don't know, but I'm looking at a video right now and she's brought out a knife. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, um, pray for me. Uh, anyway, um, thank you, Clara. Uh, Paula, I've also got you on the new, new to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm new to the podcast as a guest. I'm definitely not new as a listener. You came to <laughs> my top podcasts on Instagram last year. So. Oh my god! Oh, on the like Spotify Wrapped thingy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I'm the only the only Spotify Wrapped I existed on. Um, but how are you? How are you feeling? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, excited good. to be here because it's been some time that we've been trying to arrange this. <laughs> It's this has been the longest awaited podcast in history. I don't know, it's probably about six months, is it? Would that be it? Over? Yeah, I think we were meant to record it in August, and then um, kind of I had to cancel last minute, and it's just kind of been in a loop. But even just getting that August date took us forever, so I don't know, long time anyway. It might be more than six months. It might be more than half a year, which is actually ridiculous. But that means that this is going to be the greatest podcast that anyone has ever known. We've had a year to prepare for this. <laughs> and I'm definitely not a year's worth prepared, but, you know, um, we'll go in anyway. But um, how have how have both your days been, Paula? What have you been up to today? What have I done today? Oh, I went to the gym this morning. I had to rearrange my week this week because I'm having to go back home actually unexpectedly. So, um yeah, I, I rearranged my week so I could go to the gym this morning, done a couple nice. of hours work, and then had my lunch. And now I'm nice. <laughs> and we are we're going to get on to um, what you both do for work. And did you play? Did you do um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu today, by any chance? Or no, I didn't. I was tempted when when I thought, oh, oh, I could do something this morning. I was tempted to go to BJJ, but then I have this rule that I'm not allowed to do that if I haven't done my strength and conditioning in the week. <laughs> so. Mm. I went to the gym instead okay fair enough fair enough uh Clara what about you how's your day been uh it's been a busy day I didn't sleep very well last night so I was awake 
earlier than normal. Um, so, but I was just wide awake. So I thought I'm just going to take advantage of this uh, with the quiet hours of the early morning and started at work quite early, which meant that I was able to get some reading done. Um, I had a long meeting with my supervisor, which was really helpful. Then I had a meeting with someone who I'm like hoping to write a paper on together. And then after that, I had a nap and I woke up about half an hour ago. Uh, and I felt so much better because I was honestly dragging and I was thinking I need to be on my top game for this podcast. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a busy morning so far and a busy day so far, but feeling good now. I say, I feel like you've both done so much with your day. I've, I've literally done nothing. I've been, well, for, for people listening, I have finally officially started my PhD after mm-hmm. I think mentioning it for the last like three years, uh, basically the entire time I've had this podcast running. Um, finally, well, I actually technically haven't started. I start officially in five days but uh, I've started already doing everything for it but today has literally just been I had one meeting and then I've just been staring at doing ethics forms for if anyone out there has done research or has um, I suppose been to uni and had to do a um, dissertation and had to go through like doing ethics forms and ethics committees and stuff it is a very long and, in my opinion, boring process. Um, so, uh, yeah, just kind of cracking on with that. And Paula, you're you're out of the education world now, so you don't have to deal with that anymore. I was going to say, but it's very worthwhile, George. You'll be pleased you've done it. Once you get to actually doing the research, you'll be really mm. pleased because you've done all the hard work thinking through all the, you know, the, the minute details of it. But, yeah. That's very no, true. I'm not. <laughs> I'm <just laughs> um so i suppose we should get on to the actual um podcast itself what we're going to be talking about um so you're you both do work as exercise psychologists um and i think some people listening i imagine if you listen to this podcast you may be somewhat savvy on what an exercise psych is um but a lot of people have mostly heard of sport psychs um, I don't suppose if either of you want to take the bat on explaining the the kind of difference between those two or what the, what the crossover might be. I know I said I would I would suggest one person, but I don't know if either of you want to give that a crack. I think I'll leave that one to Paula. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to go and then I thought, oh, Claire's jumping in. <laughs> um, no, no, you go for it. Well, yeah, I, I, I suspect it's something actually when I chat to the general public and people, they don't really seem to distinguish between sport and exercise psychologist as you say lots of people have heard of sports psychology um, which has been around a bit longer in a sense and sports psychology is what you'll know as psychologists often working in high performance sport elite sport to help people with their performance or it might be more with their general lifestyle but they're often based in sports clubs they might be working at the olympics etc so they're working with a very a very specific and small section of the population. Exercise psychology is really about, it might be about applying some of the same psychological principles, but really to the rest of the population in a sense. Um, And it's really about, so I always kind of think as exercise psychologists, anyone is your client because it's really about helping. Mm. For me, it's about helping people have a healthy relationship with physical activity. And I use physical activity in the broadest term. I'm sure we might talk about this at some point, but physical activity kind of encompasses any movement. So exercise Mm. is one very specific type of physical activity, but you might also have kind of active travel, 
um, play, lifestyle movement, and sport itself is a type of physical activity. So we're also interested in sport, but we're interested in people getting involved in sport in a healthy way. If that makes any, if that makes sense, I don't know if I went too off on on a... No, that was that was perfect. That was almost like you prepared it. I I don't know if you're yeah. reading that or if that was, um, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, fantastic. It's almost like you do it for a job that you would know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I suppose you, you've kind of summed up quite nicely what it is you do. And I know, Clara, you also do this. I know you're, you're currently doing your doctorate towards becoming a um, psychologist officially. Um, I hope that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah so doctorate, it's more a training pathway, but to the equivalent-ish, yeah. Yeah. Um, so could you tell me a little bit about your kind of like day-to-day work that you do um, as the kind of exercise tra- psych trainee? Yeah, so my my area of work is specifically centered within the fitness industry. So the way that, you know, exercise psychology works within physical activity, my clients are all in the fitness industry sphere, mainly people who um, are interested in changing their physique um, or who are motivated to, you know, to work on their physique development. So um, I do different types of work. I work as an online fitness coach, but um, the work that I do there and helping my clients, um, you know, develop better habits within the gym or train more consistently, um, that is embedded, like that is basically psychology. 90% of it is psychology. So typically it's helping clients identify barriers, things that get in the way of their progress and helping them develop, you know, soft skills that can help them progress with that. Um, that's a big piece of the work that I do. Um, I also can consult one-to-one with clients who have specific needs, uh, psychological needs to be able to help them initiate exercise, maintain exercise, or, um, you know, develop a healthy relationship with exercise if um, they have found that they are dependent on it a bit too much, uh, like beyond what would be considered healthy or helpful. Um, and I also work with fitness coaches. So I consult more on a top down level with um, other fitness coaches kind of in my position in a way and help them develop um, psychological literacy um, so that their coaching processes and systems can be more psychologically informed and therefore be more supportive of their clients and their clients goals. So what do you mean by just for people who don't know what do you mean by psychological literacy? So helping them understand how things like communication, self-awareness from their coaching standpoint uh, can help them um, yeah, develop better relationships with their clients. So mm. some coaches might not be aware of the impact that they have on the coaching relationship and they might just situate the problem of you know non-adherence within the client. Mm. And part of that psychological literacy is helping the coaches understand the influence that they have on that to a relationship it does that does that kind of explain it a bit better no that's perfect yeah I think you explained it very well the first time I just think um I think literacy can can mean different things to different people especially if they're not in that kind of sphere yeah um but yeah but very very good point yeah so it's yeah I think a lot of personal trainers and um, coaches and people who aren't within that kind of psychology world might not quite understand the level of impact they can have and yeah. I think it's quite scary for a lot of you know I was a PT before I kind of got into all this and if mm. someone said that it was you know I just wanted to train people's bodies just wanted to teach people how to do exercise and how to eat in a certain way if you said I had to also look after their mental health in some kind of aspect you know I, I would think I would have scared me yeah yeah it probably should like rightly so because <laughs> it's mm. a big responsibility it's just that not many you know early career personal trainers maybe have that full-on awareness and it's something that tends to develop 
um, further down the line. And that's when either problems arise or they seek out help. And like, luckily now there are a few of us who are in that space who can respond to, to that help essentially. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Um, Paula, what about you? Are you kind of similar to the kind of work that Clara does or do you differ at all? Okay. So yeah, we, 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 we have a, a, a similar ethos and we're working towards a similar point. Um, we tend to work with slightly different populations. Um, until recently, so I, I worked at Liverpool John Moore University for about 18 years in the end. Um, and I've only recently left at the end of August to set up my independent practice in exercise psychology. So a lot mm-hmm. of the work I did whilst I was at John Moore's, I was actually, I spent eight years initially Although I was employed by the university, I was really a practitioner. I was developing and managing a healthy lifestyles program for children living with overweight and their families. So that was all about helping people to make small, gradual, sustainable changes to their eating and activity behaviours. So after that, I then, um, a lot of my work, it's all been really applied, my research, because I'm always, my my belief really is that the main purpose of doing research, certainly in psychology and physical activity, is really so it can make a difference to practice. So I've done a lot of work, um, similar in Clara in this sense, I've done a lot of work working with professionals and training other professionals, like exercise referral instructors, for instance, and um, health visitors, school nurses, training them to in, in psychology and communication skills, really, to help them communicate in a way that fosters motivation in their patients. Mm. So um, then it's only really recently that I've started exploring kind of the therapeutic potential of exercise psychology, because what I didn't say earlier, it's a very it's a very new field um, compared to sports psychology in that actually most exercise, I'm probably the, I'm probably the oldest exercise psychologist outside of academia you'll meet. There's a lot of ac- academic exercise psychologists doing research in universities, but it's only really recently that, you know, myself and Clara and a, a group of others have really tried to take this out into the real world, actually to work with people because I feel there really mm. is potential. So, the therapeutic work I'm doing, I've always had this interest in obesity and people living with overweight. And I'm working a lot with individuals who are experiencing difficult relationships with, with exercise. It's not simply a case, it's not a case of being lazy, not liking exercise. They, they, they will have suffered, well, one of them referred to it recently as kind of exercise trauma. Um, so throughout their lives, they've been living with overweight, they've had a lot of judgment, a lot of stigma. And but at the same time, they're now wanting to actually increase their physical activity, and and the combination of these things causes great anxiety. So it's mm. quite clinical work I'm doing with with some of these clients, and I really feel there's potential to to grow this. So it's very early days because it's only recently I've gone full time with my practice, but that's a bit of a snapshot of some of the things I've done. Mm, yeah, and I really do want us to talk about that side of um so it's the the mental health world around exercise of people who have that trauma around doing exercise and that kind of setting up this really difficult barrier for them to be able to step over in order to start exercising and i think i focus so much on the fact that you know we talk so much about how exercise is great and sometimes people can do too much um but i think 
under that that kind of umbrella term of of me arguing against the exercise is great thing. I do also miss this weird subsection, or it's not even a weird subsection, but this little subsection of people who the exercise is great movement is kind of targeting, but also they have this really complex relationship with exercise that isn't just that they, you know, haven't had the opportunity to do it or they just, you know, have wanted to do it like that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I do definitely want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I actually um, think it's not, I guess I don't have any facts or figures for this, but I, I I suspect it's not a very, it is more than a very small segment of the population, actually, in terms of, if I can think of handfuls of even people I know who would probably fall into this category a bit, how they're perceived, it's not visible on the outside. In terms of, on the outside, it might just look like our exercise, isn't it, for me, and laugh it off. Mm. Um, but I suspect that it's actually more common. So yeah, there's different types of unhealthy relationships with exercise, and none of them, none of them are talked about enough, really. Which is why it's so great all the work you're doing, George, with the pod and everything you do. Clara, what do you think about that? I completely agree. Completely agree. It's so often that I see clients come to me, kind of in a fitness context, not for exercise psychology support, <clears throat> but who whose relationships with exercise have never they've just never had a healthy relationship with it but not because it's been excessive exercise but because it's been a relationship that's tampered by negative experiences like not helpful histories and it's typically I don't know what you've observed Paula but the people who have been on and off the bandwagon and tried everything that's typically when I tend to see it and it's you know we've spoken about how sometimes it can be that exercise trauma and you know I I see it all the time and it's such a shame because no one talks about it and um it's something that as exercise psychologists we're just in the right position to be able to work within this field so long as we you know develop certain clinical competencies and work with accurate supervision I think it's such an important part of our work and something that we're going to see more and more of because um you know, there are a lot of people who don't exercise. We know that for sure. Uh, but what people don't tend to talk about is why and, and kind of the, the background of that. And it's, there's layers. It's it's complex. You know, it's not, I don't like exercise. I don't like the gym. It's, you know, long history, um, complex history. And unpacking that takes the understanding of a clinical, um, of a clinical psychologist and exercise psychologist. And so we're kind of like in the middle, I think, trying to do that work um yeah definitely mm, so yeah so it's, it could even be that that the people who you do speak to who i've spoken to say you know i just don't like exercise just don't like the gym do you mm. think that but for a lot of those people it could actually be this yeah i suppose um as i don't know if you've read any of um gabor mate's work um he mm. calls them big traumas and little traumas it could be these kind yeah. of potentially mm. little traumas that have built up over time um or even even some big mm. traumas where you know some event has happened that has made them um have these these barriers in place for exercise yeah, a hundred percent. And it tends to be things like, Oh, I don't I'm not, never really been a fan of the gym and sort of when you start to unpack that and really understand the client, it can emerge that they've maybe had experiences of being bullied for their weight when they were a kid or something like that. And so any kind of situation that exposes them to trying to make those changes that would, you know, no help them lose weight, for example, mm-hmm. is really, really triggering for them. Um, you know, it 
can easily lead to unpacking things like parenting and how parents would have communicated or behaved around exercise and food in front of their kids and then you know that that kid becomes an adult and then finds that yeah going to the gym is extremely triggering or exercising or moving their bodies is really triggering is something that you know it's a little with a little t to an extent but lots of little t's make a big t right um Mm. talking about trauma um and, and yeah it's it's incredibly incredibly common but what i think is that a lot of people just don't have the language to articulate it or maybe they do and they don't feel like they don't they don't maybe understand or know that little traumas exist mm. that little traumas exist and so there's maybe some shame within that and kind of a reluctance to you know to to speak openly about what their experiences actually feel like and very often what it leads to and of course the fitness industry is set up in the perfect way for that is for that kind of like self-blaming and putting all the onus on themselves and thinking oh well there must be something wrong with me if I just can't seem to get on it and I can't seem to stay consistent and it's just that loop that keeps going and it just you know it's um what do they say like a death by a thousand cuts or something like that that's kind of what I tend to see that that's at the end when they end up working with me for example whether that be you know, as a fitness coach, as an exercise psychologist, people come to me because, you know, I bring the psychology to it. That's what we're dealing with. It's a like, all right, okay, let's unpack this. Where do we go now? Mm. Paula, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally can resonate with what Clara's saying. And I think I see the same things. Once, once you start unpacking it, it, it goes back to things that have happened in childhood, things that have been happening throughout their lives. And I think something that, and the reason I think it often is more common than we realize is a lot of people deal with it simply by avoiding exercise. Yeah. So particularly people who, who are living with overweight, living with obesity, there's a, 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 a cultural thing, particularly in, in, well, don't know if it's a British thing. I remember when I started doing this, actually, and I can see the world has changed slightly since, because I used to say when like, it must be 20 years ago, actually, it, but, exercise didn't used to be cool to do it kind mm. of has become a bit more cool to do in the last 10 years or so I'd say um yeah but like there's still a laughing it off like we will all know people who, who are per, per, perhaps bigger people living with overweight they laugh it off um in terms of our exercise that's not for me it's it's just a joke that's all whatever but you'd never go beyond that conversation to actually whereas actually if they were to sit in a room with a psychologist and start and picking all the things that surround that um without a doubt there would be aspects and I think the other thing where that comes from even if it, it, it it's lifelong often for these individuals They've often yeah. suffered with the, certainly some of the clients I'm working with, um, and and when we used to do the obesity program, a lot of the parents on that program they they'd have been overweight, they'd have been they had overweight all their lives. Their only experience of exercise and sport was in school PE, where they used to be, they 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 might be punished because they couldn't keep up with the rest of them running around the field. They were just horrible experiences, and that's all they knew of, of exercise and physical activity. But then throughout their lives, they've had this ongoing judgment and actually mm. societal perceptions around fitness and physical activity and weight can be really debilitating for someone because this is the thing with obesity. It's it's so visual as a health condition. Mm. 
and actually that self-consciousness around what are other good people going to think of me if they see me trying to exercise is absolutely huge and yeah. you know one client I was working with recently had this well it's fine for people who are slim to be out of breath nobody thinks twice if you walk past somebody slim jogging but if you walk past somebody who's it's overweight and out of breath they're going to judge me they're going to think I'm unfit they're going to think and then it comes back to the um the core beliefs the emotions Clara was talking about about Mm -hmm. these I'm a bad person it's my fault for getting like this all this Mm self-blame so there's so many factors coming into play but actually all you'd see if this was your mate on the surface was ah no I'm happy as I am exercise isn't for me yeah, um, and and actually, I'm really interested in how we can <laughs> reach this population who aren't out there looking to exercise. Because what I'm then seeing is, this is my kind of hypothesis about this, that these emotions kind of lie dormant while they can avoid exercise, and then, but then something might happen, like a type two diabetes diagnosis, for instance, or mm. something puts pressure on them, some some event that makes them feel they have to exercise or else something's going to happen. And then that mm. pressure coupled with these very negative exercise emotions is what brings anxiety to, to the surface. And I guess if we can try and help have a healthier climate around the way we approach, well, we've so, so much would need doing for that, but, you know, even the way we approach weight management in terms of helping people talk about exercise in a healthier way, um, develop a more positive relationship with it we can maybe make mm. some headway to to prevent that so they're better equipped when they do want to change but, but mm. yeah so there's a lot there because it's so complex yeah. no it, it is it's so interesting and it's you know, i've not i've not really thought about or articulated this before so this might be a mess what i'm about to say but um it's it's reminding me of you know i'm i'm thinking of my own just even the fact that i was somewhat unaware of this makes so much sense what you guys are talking about about this these little traumas and these kind of experiences as a child and it reminds me almost of you know the eating disorder literature that i that i know much better um of the you know the parents are talking about food and exercise in certain ways and the and the way that your body looks and then that leads to these kind of you know people using exercise and using food in a way to try and lose weight and doing it excessively and it's almost the same but it's just a different bridge of of instead of kind of latching onto them and doing them too much people are create this immense amount of amount of fear around it yeah and it it also it also is making me think of you know that idea of you were talking um Paula about clients that you've spoken to people you've spoken to who have said that they you know because they're they're in an overweight body when they exercise and if they're if they're out of breath people will see it in a different way it almost shows me the importance of um something that I'm really interested in is the display of exercise and it as a visual thing the fact that you know for even for me for myself when I was struggling with my muscularity stuff which is probably is different here but a big part of it for me was I wanted I part of it fed this like kind of like narcissistic need that I had of you know it was it was because of like a low self-worth but I wanted other people to see me working hard and see me performing this exercise in a certain way and I wonder if that 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 kind of performance aspect of exercise is, is part of the issue here in that people feel like because their body isn't what is shown in in the media around exercise that they're not kind of allowed to be part of that performance or they're they're in somehow 
um, they're going to be embarrassed by trying to mimic that performance of someone who has that like body type that that people tend to tie to exercise. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to agree with that. I think there's a lot in that, and sort of you know, even though gyms have become better and kind of more welcoming spaces, um, there's still such a big, um, I'm going to call it fat phobia. Mm. That's the way that a lot of my clients describe it to me in that um, they don't feel like their bodies are welcome in the gym or even if no one's ever said anything because their bodies haven't been welcome in other spaces, they just assume that that is the same. So, you know, they would feel like if they were, using a bench and someone was behind them or like if they were standing on the gym floor using the mirror to like to to check their technique they would feel like they were taking up too much space um mm. and that they were that would be in the way of someone else being able to see them and so they would kind of automatically move to the corner and not use you know n- not use up and not take up the space that they you know that they can and should and, and deserve to because they don't want to be in other people's way because previously in their life they've been made made to feel like they are in the way um coming back to some childhood experiences things like again so many clients of mine that work with me as an exercise psychologist have been bullied for their weight when they were kids and honestly it's almost uncanny how how many of them developed survival strategies of always sitting on the edge of the classroom at the back so that they're not in the way of anybody. And that then leads to them modifying their entire existence when they leave the house, when they're in public transport, and especially when they're in public spaces where they can be seen to be exercising. You know, it cannot be um, in front of anybody else or in, in a way that could make someone feel like they're in the way. It, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, and it's 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 so weird because so I, for people who don't know, and I don't know if if either of you two know, but um, when I had a spinal injury when I was younger, and I gained a substantial amount of weight, and my well, I think my BMI was like obese, so I've been in a, a much larger body previously, and I I remember developing, and I still have the fear to this day, and I talk about it with my partner all the time that I hate being in busy shops because I feel like I'm constantly in the way of people, um, and I've al- I've always spoken about you know i've just like i've like i'm still quite like a big person in general um but i've and 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 i do remember i have very distinct memories of when i was kind of overweight and um all as in the 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 category of the bmi was obese um and i you know i was in, in just especially when because i'd gone from being kind of like a normal weight according to the bmi to having this injury and then being obese that's such a drastic change for me when i went out in public and i was suddenly you know taking up more space and you know i remember being in shops and people you know trying to get past me or having and just feeling so ashamed with that idea and i still have that to this day and i wonder you know if that if that played a part in my kind of experiences with my body image and and you know maybe that was part of the driving factor for me towards trying to lose weight and trying to you know and yeah it's quite interesting I've not thought about it before so I don't quite know where I stand with that yet but just to get interesting reflection on what you were saying I think the other thing that was interesting what Clara was saying there is that it, it might it doesn't even take anything to actually happen like they might actually be in a perfectly friendly gym environment nobody might actually be be judging them or thinking anything but it's so ingrained their perception of what others are thinking of them 
it's that that's that's driving them down and like the type of work I might be doing so, so with the client I mentioned with the being very conscious about it being being out of breath means you're unfit and therefore mm. particularly if you're seen as being out of breath when you're in a larger body size it's going to be negative some of the work that we did was actually asking them to go along to a one one of one of his home tasks was to go along to a not to compete not to take part in park run because he was miles away from doing that but actually just to just to go and walk around and observe people at, at park run um anyone that doesn't know what park run is is brilliant it's a 5k run every every saturday morning all over the country and all over the world but i won't go on to that now but anyway <laughs> just to, just to go along and observe and actually observe with an open mindset about you know, look at different people's body sizes. Look at look at where they are in the pack. Look at their breathing. Put yourself in their position to imagine how they're feeling. So also some work on empathy. And actually, this was quite powerful because um, I don't know if you've been along to a park run either of you, but park run is one of the comments you get from people who come along to any any like that is oh wow actually I thought everyone was going to be in lycra and super fit and skinny <laughs> and you realize that everybody there's all, all shapes and sizes all ages you get people who, like the 80 year olds or 90 year olds <laughs> doing it and, and you can walk as well so it's really quite eye-opening in terms of the diversity and actually a much more holistic view of movement and bodies and realistic Mm. and can can you tell me a bit more about you're talking about the like empathy there and Mm -hmm. i I just i'm wondering how do you think that plays into it like having learning kind of empathy with that well again with it it can be really useful because so much of because so much of this is so so empathy is again just to clarify i think for anyone because empathy is it isn't putting yourself in somebody else's shoes sorry it isn't thinking about what you would do if you were in someone else's situation it is thinking about what it feels like for them to be in their situation now this is obviously really challenging to do because we only have our own our own views and thoughts and to, to base it on but but there is a subtle difference there and it's been very helpful for instance I think when when it's so ingrained on your perceptions of what others think of you, it can help people to try and consider alternative explanations. So um, another another issue that people might find challenging is, you know, our society just talks about weight so easily, um, just particularly, particularly women. I don't know if it's so much in men's circles, but it's so normal for women of, yeah, my age certainly my age I'm, I'm mid-40s now but you know it's such a common conversation um and yeah yeah I would have thought 20s 30s it's the same uh, uh, just to, to chat about how you know or you might just throw in comments oh I'm eating a bit too much at the moment or I need to lose some weight or I need to you know and 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 it's it's a common topic of conversation but for clients who are for people who feel that they are much bigger than the other people in in the group, it, it a, a kind of off the cuff comment about oh I've put on loads of weight over Christmas I really, really need to need to get rid of it 
can be really like, oh, well, if, if you if you think that about yourself, what do you think about me? Um, mm-hmm. And actually, but by being able to then think about, okay, why is that person saying that that comment? What what is it meaning to them personally? And actually realizing that they're not even considering the other people or thinking anything about you when they're saying that can be helpful mm-hmm. in. Yeah, just really trying to see different viewpoints. Mm. So it's it's almost like allowing you to, or teaching yourself how to separate someone else's viewpoint from your own, or or from a judgment onto you. Yeah, that's that makes sense. That and I suppose I suppose that would help with. Again, I'm thinking about the eating disorder world and mm. stuff as well. You know, if someone does make a negative comment about their own body, it doesn't necessarily apply to you. Um, and that, yeah, I guess that that is the same with compliments, I suppose, as well. Like, you know, just because somebody says, again, I'm thinking in the muscularity side of stuff, if someone, you know, from my own lived experience, but if someone said, when people said to me that they thought somebody else's, like, arms were nice because they were big or, you know, they, they complimented someone's arms, I would then assume that mine must also look like that in order to deserve a compliment. Or, you know, you know, there's stuff like that where you could you can understand that maybe maybe it's different when they're looking at a celebrity or looking at a magazine or looking at, a, you know, a poster of somebody compared to, like, a person in real life or just their opinion of me specifically. Yeah. Uh, that's quite that's a really interesting point yeah and I think it's really I mean that is that is of course a common um what we'd call a cognitive distortion in terms of personalizing everything you hear mm. um so, so like your example you just gave somebody could be complimenting someone else you're standing over here and then you immediately start comparing yourself on on that or thinking why you know um what why haven't they said that about me or but I, I was thinking as I was talking before you know there are and your comment earlier George that you'll be noticing a lot of parallels, I'm sure, as I'm talking in terms of regardless if you're the person in that room with with an eating disorder or suffered disordered eating or you're the person in the room. Of course, a lot of these people living with overweight also have disordered eating, (laughs) I should say. Um, But there are are similarities in, in the psychology of these aspects, even though on the outside it manifests, it looks like it's the other end of the continuum. One person mm. has got too much weight, one person not, not got enough weight, but actually the actual psychological underpinning of these, as you've observed earlier, both of you, are, are pretty, have, do have commonalities. So I mm. think we can learn, you know, learn stuff, I, I think, in terms of those, you know, that because people commenting and, People commenting and just really commenting and not meaning anything by it, but then can be really difficult if that comment is triggering for you. Okay. And so so that's where some work on empathy and actually helping understand where other people are coming from can be helpful in being responding to that in a way that is helpful for you rather than reacting to that or letting it trigger you. Mm. Okay, nice. Well, we've spoke on this topic for forty minutes now, somehow. Uh, so I'm gonna—I've now got another like eight questions I'm supposed to be talking about. <laughs> so I'm gonna just kind of try and move on to a, another one. But it's really, really interesting. It's such—it's a side that I don't think I've spoken about on the podcast before. Um, and yeah, something I've not really kind of yeah, I suppose delved into much in myself. Um, 
but I know I, I, I'm, I'm now moving on to something I am much more uh, comfortable with, but also I'm really interested in both your opinions on. And Clara, I know you mentioned before that you work with people who do kind of overuse exercise in different ways and, and you, you work in the fitness industry, which is why I talk about a lot in this, uh, you know, it tends to be a, a world that um, does promote a, you know, excessive exercise or at least this idea of tying one's worth to how much exercise they can do it might maybe just my opinion there but I, th- I think so um what, what kind of stuff uh, i suppose you know what kind of stuff do you have to do or do you do with people who are struggling with that kind of obsessive or you know excessive levels of exercise oh <laughs> big question um hmm. i'd agree on a lot of the things that you said though um what do i do well very often I try to understand, you know, I try to kind of put myself in my client's position and try to understand with them what function exercise is serving in their life. Um, very often when people find themselves over-exercising or using exercise as a clutch for, you know, that, that they, they constantly rely on, it's because exercise serves a purpose. So I always come to it from the philosophy or the perspective that all behavior makes sense in context and so if someone finds themselves um constantly exercising over exercising and unable to uh not exercise without experiencing distress um it's really important to firstly understand you know the function that it serves them and yeah. once that has been understood a bit more and kind of there's there's a bit more of an understanding around that as to you know how long has it been going on for when did it start what makes it worse what makes it easier to tolerate um then that can help us start to build other ways to move through whatever things that they are moving past when Mm. they exercise um so typically this I tend to use with these types of with these experiences, I tend to use things like um, acceptance and commitment therapy or compassion focused therapy, um, which are what we we would call third wave cognitive therapies, which try and help people understand um, and detach themselves to an extent from the thoughts and experiences that they're having and to really understand how they make sense to them. So, Um, to give you an example you know just because Paula was speaking there about empathy um, compassion is kind of like the next I would almost say like the next step after empathy I don't know if semantically that is fully correct Mm. but one of the big things that a lot of people who over exercise struggle with is with self-compassion they just don't seem to have you know they don't seem to feel like they are deserving or of kindness and they tend to have a very big self-critic and a lot of perfectionism in there. So what you were saying there around exercise being tied to their self-worth, that's exactly that link in there. So if I don't exercise, I am not good enough. Mm. And so it's then helping them develop a sense of compassion towards themselves so that if they don't exercise, they still know that they've got their own back and they can still soothe themselves and they've got other tools and techniques that can help them regulate emotions. Um by being in touch with those big emotions and not just kind of ignoring them or suppressing them. Uh, and again, just expanding their library of, of skills. Um, Cause as we know, you know, exercise can be really helpful to move, to move through big emotions, but if it's our only tool, wow, that that's what can lead a lot of people to end up with big problems. Yeah. I think it is that is it, that tends to be the point, isn't it? Is when it's the only tool for someone or it's, yeah, yeah someone leans so heavily on it. Paula, do you, do you see many people who have that experience? 
No, I, I haven't really worked with this population much yet. Um, and I, I think part of the reason for that is, is still a, a lack of lack of awareness about the support mm. that is out there in exercise psychology. George, obviously, you know, we, I've been working with you guys with, with MIND because I think there's a real importance to raise awareness about yeah. this becoming an issue. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree with what Clara said. And, again, it, it's resonating in the, the, the similarities of actually how Clara's describing working with someone in that situation is, again, very similar to, to the where I would be working on, on self-worth, helping people have that self-worth independent of this pressure to exercise, um, despite mm. what manifests on the surface seeming different. Um, mm. And a lot of this does come down to the, this, I'm a bad person, I have to do this else I'm not worth it. Yeah. Mm, it's interesting, I was just thinking about the um, like self-compassion and... I was reading a paper the other day that was looking at um, REBT therapy, the the um, rational emotive behavior therapy. Um, I know it's, it's different from the the ones you were talking about, but the the paper was was looking at um, rational beliefs and irrational beliefs in people with muscle dysmorphia, um, and they they basically uh, drew a really quite close parallel to the idea of rational beliefs and like having rational thoughts about things and um what, what i can't remember exactly what they called it but it was something like um like unconditioned self-compassion or something like that so you know unconditional self-acceptance or compassion or something like that um it kind of sounds like a kind of a crossroad there and they, they basically found that people who had that unconditional self-acceptance i think it was maybe um but they they found that 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 seemed to lower muscle dysmorphia symptoms at least when they started to kind of um take on those behaviors and thoughts do you think it's kind of similar there i suppose i suppose the muscle dysmorphia behaviors do overlap quite a lot with exercise um compulsion uh, you know that is an aspect of it yeah no i think that that completely makes sense and you know the unconditional self-acceptance self-compassion i mean it's it's kind of the same thing it's just that the way that you applied in an intervention is slightly different mm. um but yeah you know when you can help people through acceptance when you can help them become more accepting of themselves not only of themselves but also of the contents of the mind accepting of their experiences and accepting of their interpretations of experiences of course it's going to help um lower the intensity of the thoughts that they might have because they're able to hold them a bit more lightly and not become so what we would maybe call fused with them um you know obviously REBT and CBT which would be like second wave cognitive therapies have got a slightly different approach to them where the goal is more around changing the thought whereas the way that I have found in my experience and again it's just kind of my opinion and my philosophy is that telling people that their thoughts are irrational isn't that helpful when it comes mm. to exercise it's more helpful to not argue with the thoughts but actually you know see okay well even if you have that thought are you able to do something that is helpful for you um so for example with someone who is overweight you know arguing against is it irrational you know that telling them so that they're too fat to go to the gym well that may be me saying that that's irrational, I think is undermining. Um, and so it's more helpful, in my opinion, again, to just take the approach of, okay, well, you have that thought, can you 
separate yourself a bit from that thought and can you still go to the gym even if you have that thought in your mind can you you know create a bit of distance so much so that you allow for other thoughts to also come into this space um and that's kind of maybe how I would articulate it and explore it but certainly you know acceptance and compassion are elements that you know I wouldn't say 99% of the time I end up working on with my clients. Um, It doesn't never, like there's never been a situation in which that wouldn't be helpful for them. Hmm. Paula, what about yourself? Do you kind of favor these, uh, I think you Clara called them third wave therapies, these ones that are more about compassion and that kind of thing? It's interesting as I listen to Clara speak, because I guess I I would, uh, I haven't done REBT. I know a bit about it, but um, I'm really, uh, yeah, I, I I probably do more what would be classed as the second wave CBT. Mm-hmm. However, I am also a real believer in acceptance. And I think rather than it being, I would see it, I used to think before I knew anything about CBT, it's often given a bit of a bad press in that, certainly from the mindfulness literature used to say, CBT is all about changing thoughts and mindfulness is all about just letting them be. So when I used to read all that, I was, I was very much on the mindfulness side and thought, well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. The minute I try and change or resist something, it's going to bring it back even stronger. But but now I've actually been learning CBT and practicing it, and, and I realize it is much more – a lot of these things are more similar than we think in terms of it, it essentially is about a collaborative relationship between the yeah. practitioner and client. And I do find it useful to help people. So you're not challenging their thoughts. You're helping them. You're asking questions in a way that helps them reflect on is, how, how believable is that thought? Is, is there, do I have any evidence for that thought? How might someone else look at that thought? You know, if, if, if for instance, your friend was doing that, how might, what might you say to them or how might mm. and it helps people I, I find that that combined with and an, some acceptance um so you're not you're not actively trying to suppress these thoughts but actually these conversations around trying to re- look at things in a different way can often lead people to change organically because they have a bit more understanding about it. So then even if that thought is still there, because often they are because they're so ingrained, um, they might then be better equipped to apply the kind of acceptance coping skills to think, okay, I can see that thought's there, but I I no longer really believe it because I can see where it's coming from. So I'm more able to concentrate on my breath and just let it pass by so I think the two things actually can go together and certainly in more recent CBT work they're starting to write in acceptance and mindfulness as well that goes alongside it so I just wanted to clarify that because I guess I don't want to put any listeners off um CBT or or thinking that because these approaches can be very helpful I didn't mean to poo-poo CBT it's just that I don't my values don't align with it as much but at the end of the day as you said Paula they achieve a very very similar thing it's just a slightly like a slightly different approach and we also know that so much of the outcome within you know that therapeutic relationship is by engaging in therapy or with a psychologist is based on the relationship that you build um, the techniques that you use to get there you know 
at the end of the day, um, don't matter as much as the relationship that you build. So, you know, that's, that's also important to highlight. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really great that you, we can get those kind of different sides of the story. And I think it comes down to the individual, I know I'm speaking completely out of my arse here because I'm not a psychologist, but it, <laughs> I think it, well, from what I, from what I can hear, it seems to be that it's, you know, it different for everyone. And I think everyone kind of re- reacts to different things differently. And, you know, for me, like, counseling psychology's always just been just talking about how i feel has worked like a treat for me but i know lots of people who say you know they go to counseling and they say it doesn't do anything for them and they did it for ages and does nothing but for me it's just, it worked almost in, not well, not instantly but you know I, I found change almost instantly just from talking about it and someone listening to me and you know asking more questions so because it depends on the personal person's personality and their own kind of the way that they think and the way that they are George, would you um, mind if I asked you a question? Am I allowed to ask you a question? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course you can. <laughs> in relation to that, what, so what you're describing sounds like more of a what we call a humanistic form of counselling, where it is it's very much about letting you talk, giving you space. And did you did you have that kind? Of, have you had that kind of counselling in relation to your muscle? dysmorphia and your eating disorder issues or how has it been more generally to do with mental health concerns if you it's don't always, that. no of course yeah um it's it's always been um very general like i, I mm-hmm. when when i first went when i first started counseling was in my second year at uni um and i was also i'd just been suicidal so i, I was kind of going with just general like just very negative mental health um and we spoke a lot about my um like disordered eating and and stuff but you know a lot of a lot of what I was doing was just kind of going back and forth I suppose my counselor did give me like you know he would do I guess similar things to what you were saying before in that he would tell me you know he'd ask me you know how do you feel if if somebody else if your friend said that how would you feel about that and you're kind of taking those thoughts away from me and and letting me look at them from a different perspective Um, and used to always kind of you know for example I always remember with my my binge eating I used to talk so much about how ashamed I was of it and how you know how I just felt terrible about myself and how I used to always I used to say how frustrated I was I couldn't stop it because every time I did it I felt terrible the next morning but then I'd do it again. Like, and I was like, why do I keep doing this when I know that it, it's making me feel horrible? And I remember him, he was just being like, why don't you just let yourself do it then? And then just be okay with it. And then I, I remember I just, what a revelation that was for me, just being like, well, just let yourself do it then. And don't like st- stop trying to fight it. And I don't know if that would, maybe that then puts it into some other form of um, therapy. But yeah, a lot of what I did, a lot of what I did have just literally someone sat across the room from me and talking and that's kind of what I do now I'm with a different counselor now to mm-hmm. what I was with who I was with then um but yeah the guy that I see now um a lot of it is yeah I only see him once a month um but a lot of it is just me kind of talking about my like what's happened in the last month and how I feel and he just asks me kind of different questions every now and then mm-hmm. um but it, it's, it's difficult now as well because because I'm so aware of the research and mm-hmm. I don't know if other people find this, uh, but maybe you guys find it with being psychologists um, that, you know, because I know 
so much mm. about the research of the stuff I'm going through. I find it so hard to not just like apply the research to myself and just be like, oh, it's it's this paper. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm experiencing what Moria tells what it wrote about in 2015. <laughs> you know, like like it's you know, it's so it's so hard for me to actually just rec- like feel an emotion and be like, oh, this is an emotion. But especially <laughs> when I'm talking about it anyway, it's more like, a, oh, this is X study. Um, I don't know what you two think yeah. about that. No, no, I get that. You become your own. Um, you, you definitely become your own kind of subject of experiment the whole time. Oh, or like to, yeah, I'm constantly not. I don't mean psychoanalyzing myself, but you, you, you know, I'll be running park run and I'll be noticing what kind of thoughts I'm having or what type of, you know, I'll, I'll be labeling stuff with the theories and the, <laughs> and and it. But it's it's a real learning experience as well, I think. And I, I'm just just interested, just on your point about the therapy, George. Thank you for that. Just to, for context, why I was asking. I guess I'm curious in terms of the because when we're working people with with problems with exercise, it, it's quite goal directed in a sense. And I don't know, Clara, you'd feel like. I mean, certainly when my clients come to me, they're quite specific in in what they want help with in terms of actually, you know, this is this particular thing is causing me real distress and 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 I don't know I guess I'm curious still as to whether I I certainly haven't felt which is why I'm going down the route I'm going with certain therapies I haven't felt a a very counselling just listening approach would be able to necessarily get them to where they want to go in the best way and so I was curious but then as you were speaking as well I was also curious that actually how how much to the client do they perceive those differences? If it's actually delivered in a way that is really collaborative, my my clients also describe it as well. We just talk. Um, they mm. probably could well do. I'd be interested because because again, some of what you're describing there, George, could be some of the. It's difficult for us to say that it could be somebody doing some cognitive behavioural stuff. It could be. It was quite an acceptance type comment they made as well. So, mm. but actually, it comes back to that relationship. But yeah, so, yeah, it was just interesting. So, thank you. I hope and thank you for sharing. I hope you didn't mind me asking. No, yeah. I, I encourage if if either of you have questions for me or for each other, please do go ahead and ask them. Um, but yeah, it's it is interesting. I suppose it's difficult because um, I'm looking at that past through a different brain. Of that, when when I was going through that, I um you know i was deep in my kind of eating disorder and and muscularity stuff um and i hadn't really had any interest in psychology at all um and and if i'm honest with you it was, i think part of it was due to my like mus my like masculinity muscularity stuff because a lot of the people who on my course who were interested in because we did sports psych in my sports science degree for my undergrad a lot of the people who were interested in the psychology were all the like women on, on my course and i I, put, I think part of me want like with that this kind of like masculinity issues i had was like i didn't that like, it felt more manly to to be interested in the the physiology because that's what all the guys would were more talking about um and i think part of me i didn't let myself be interested in it and and then but but my my point was that yeah i was you know i think looking at it now with this like new knowledge it's almost like it's the 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 memory is kind of from a weird perspective from me and like i'm so different to what i was then that it's almost hard to remember exactly what was happening because i'm remembering it through the eyes of me who had no idea about any of this stuff um so it's sorry to interrupt there George but I do not find that by doing that it almost allows you to 
maybe I'm just like applying my own lens to everything, but like to look, view it with a bit more compassion, kind of the more you read around them, the more you get to understand how these types of things emerge and, and show up for different people. Like, does it not allow you to go, all right, that makes sense for me. Like, yeah, that's, that's nice that I can now understand a bit more about that. Like, is that kind of how you experience it when you're describing kind of looking back on it? Yeah, I suppose so. I think a, a massive thing that I work, I've been doing in the last like six months with my, with my council, I've been seeing once a month. Um, Cause I'm doing, I'm in a much better place now. So my kind of the amount I see them, him kind of changes and depending on how I'm doing, but it's been once a month. But a big thing that I talk about a lot is just uh, recognizing that I went through a lot of like horrible shit when I was younger. Like, I, you know, my dad was an alcoholic when I was a kid. I spoke about it on the pod before. Um, yeah. But, you know, and I went, I, I experienced a lot of really horrible things. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I always, can, you know, I've read about trauma and I've read about all these, these like people going through new difficult things and how it impacts. And I've always thought, God, yeah, that would, that makes so much sense. But it's so weird that I'm going through it because my life's fine. Like, but, you know, it's so weird looking at it through, yeah, that kind of different lens. But I suppose part of it is, you know, looking at it now and, and talking about it and learning about it. I am recognizing, you know, that especially when I read about the relationship between masculinity and and um, the my kind of the issues that I've experienced with muscularity is that you know my my dad would would always be coming home with the you know the police would bring him home in the middle of the night and you know and stuff like that and and but he was regarded in my town as this really like manly man because you know he used to get in fights and he was big at rugby and you know he had tattoos all over him and you know he was just he was this you know very stereotyp- stereotypical like like very masculine man type thing um and i was never that i've always been very emotional and i've always you know i've never been never wanted to fight and you know i've, I've just just not who i am and mm-hmm. i think you know yeah looking back at that I'm, I'm kind of you know no wonder i had the problems that i did because you know it's, it's pretty much like bob on what we see with the other people who experience it um so yeah i was to answer your question in a very long-winded way but um mm-hmm. yes i think it does allow me to have that kind of compassion yeah yeah thank you for showing that I just it's um it's really interesting just the more we learn about something kind of through our lived experience and then through reading about it the more we start to notice and highlight things I think I just to kind of since you've shared a bit about yourself I'll kind of bring some of my own lived experience into this and that um I started learning about um hypothalamic amenorrhea which is a you know loss of your periods due to excessive exercise and weight loss um towards the end of my bodybuilding prep in 2021 and I started learning about it um because I was trying to help I was working with a client who presented this with this and the more I read about it the more red flags that I read about myself and I was like oh my god um and you know then I finished bodybuilding and you know through one thing and the next I figured that I that I had the exact same diagnosis um and kind of in unpacking that and working to get my menstrual cycle back after competing as a bodybuilder, there were so many things that I was like, oh my God, like kind of how it all really just linked together in terms of, you know, over-exercising and, you know, those types of things that never really appeared to be problematic until it was reflected in my health in a very, very stark way. Mm. Um, So it's just really interesting when you learn about something and then you look back and you go, Ah, uh, the you know the signs were always there, but it's not until you're at a particular point in your life that you can recognize it and look back and go, right, I see mm. this now. 
No, yeah, that, thank you for sharing your own experience as well. And uh, I think that's quite an interesting thing to kind of maybe just delve into. I, again, I don't want to, I'm kind of worried about timing. We're, we're definitely not going to answer or ask all the questions we thought we were going to ask. But um, <laughs> I, I do want to kind of, I suppose, go down the bodybuilding route again because you know we spoke about it before on the pod and i think you know, maybe i i like to say my my opinion tends tends to change from the start of the podcast to the end of the podcast and afterwards the amount of times i finish a podcast and i like listen to it when i'm editing it and i'm like i disagree with half the things i've said now and <laughs> um, you know my opinion is constantly changing so i'm interested how our opinions are changing and also now we've got paula as well and i know we spoke about bodybuilding with you before paula well it was actually yeah, sorry. It was actually after I listened to the podcast with you two last time, yes. I had a big email of reflections about, oh, yes. this, this has really made me think about things in a different way. And that's what actually triggered us saying, let's do a three-way podcast, I think. If, if my... Oh my gosh, it's been a year then since <laughs> <laughs> that's That's crazy. Okay, well, there you go. It's all girl coming full circle. Um, and I guess I'd, I want to uh, quote from that email. I think it is from that email that um, you put um paula and then i guess clara ask for your opinions on this but feel free to kind of uh, go off on one as well um but paula i've got a quote here from you you said that uh, from a psychological perspective there's a difference between someone who uses makeup and fashion in a creative way because of their love of art which is adaptive um and someone who uses makeup and fashion as a means of masking their insecurities and a fear of um or not knowing how to being their true selves or being true to themselves which is would be a maladaptive way um so you said perhaps bodybuilding could be considered some kind of art form for some um, and maybe that that could be the adaptive way of it similar to someone using makeup or fashion um i've kind of pre- i've i've uh, changed your quote slightly there but you know that's just for explanation okay. purposes clara what, what what do you think what do you think about that i completely agree you know definitely i think the thing with bodybuilding is that for competitive bodybuilders when you compete it's a competition but it's also called a bodybuilding show so Mm. you're putting on a show you know it is an art form you it's not just the best physique that wins it's the best presentation of the best physique that wins so it isn't um just just about bodies or just about comparing bodies there's an element of um, that performance in there and I would agree that you know maybe bodybuilders aren't necessarily able to articulate it as such but those who view it as a means of you know seeing how they can carve out their physique seeing how they can develop their physique uh, with quite a curious and open mind tend to have much more longevity and much more enjoyment in the sport than those who uh, get into it because it helps them you know it kind of justified their obsession with food and and with exercise and kind of those behaviors that um from an outside perspective look pretty dysfunctional they kind of get masked in the bodybuilding world but they always something always happens you know and and it would be if that person gets injured and then they can't train you know that's when the problems start to emerge so I would definitely agree that in viewing bodybuilding as an art form um it definitely encourages more process-based goals it encourages a much more flexible mindset it encourages a lot more compassion um again not that bodybuilders necessarily articulate these things as such but kind of viewing it from that lens it can really start to show you that there is different ways of approaching bodybuilding and not every athlete or bodybuilding competitor um does it in that way and unfortunately there's um not really any system to discriminate between the two there's not 
bodybuilding coaches aren't equipped to make those distinctions and so then everyone ends up on the same bodybuilding stage uh, but some people come away from it um, in a much much better place than others do unfortunately mm. and Paula is a kind of a I don't I don't think you've engaged in bodybuilding much from conversations we've had anyway um, I think you said before not me I thought you were gonna say but what what are your kind of thoughts as a as an onlooker and also just off of what Clara's just said well yeah so I mean a context I guess around why I, I, where the thought process was coming from to ask that question in the first place because I, I I will openly say um I've always yeah I guess I, I guess I've I guess I've looked quite judgmentally at bodybuilding and in you know traditionally and, and coming from a psychological perspective I've tended to look and be like well how, how on earth can that be healthy it's so driven by aesthetics and driven by a need to prove your self-worth and, but also the physical side of it has concerned me as well. So I've, I've always, so, so since getting to know Clara and also we've got another colleague in the exercise site community who bodybuilds, um, I've tried to approach it with an, with an open mind and like, like listening to your podcast last time, really trying to, you know, listen openly and and I've learned a lot listening to you, Clara, and this, I hope you don't mind me sharing those honest words. No, no, but but actually listening to you and listening to this other colleague and, and really trying to, it, it was, it, I was starting to question, well, actually, and question myself, or think, well, why am I, why, 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 why am I quick to judge that, okay, this might not be healthy for people, where actually things like, I really, well, it's not so visible anymore, but I really enjoy fashion and aesthetics in that way. And actually I was starting to think about people who were very into like fashion and makeup and and, and actually thinking, well, well, could there be a parallel there? Because what you're actually trying to do is, is um, kind of carve your body in a way. But the yeah. other perspective that started to help me see, well, could there be a healthy side to it is, is, is the... How are the colleague talking about the mindfulness aspect of it, and actually how I guess I could I could starting to see that how how it can help in terms of your interoception and becoming more aware of how mm-hmm. how your body responds to what you're putting in it and what you're doing with it. I can see a curiosity in that. Oh well, if I do this, actually, is this muscle gonna get bigger? And you know, actually learning about how your body works and quite. Mm-hmm. a healthy side to it in that sense but as mm-hmm. Clara says I think the distinction and this is just the same as in any exercise or sport isn't it I guess because the coaches aren't psychologists and aren't understanding necessarily of how to approach these things in a healthy way is then when it potentially becomes more dangerous but I don't I hope you don't mind me sharing that quite I guess it's it's the because I think yeah, it's when you don't know a lot about something, isn't it? And I've learned so much about bodybuilding compared to what I used to know before I mm-hmm. met you, Clara. Mm, it's, it's so it's so interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I always think of um, like because I was massively into bodybuilding um, when I was going through what I was going through, and I still I still follow it to a degree now. I follow some of the people, and I see it through such a different lens now to what I did before. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the people who, for people who maybe do follow bodybuilding, Clara, you may know these people. Um, I always think of the bodybuilder Kai Green. 
um, who, yes. um, for, for Paula, if you don't follow or know who Kai Green is, and for other people listening who don't know who Kai Green is, um, he's a, a very famous bodybuilder, um, and he was he's kind of known for being a bit kind of out there. He's, he's quite, he kind of speaks in, as a philosopher in a lot of ways. He speaks very, yeah. like, very, um, yeah, I don't know how to describe him other than just go listen to an interview with him and you'll see you'll see what I mean. Um, but his his thing was always about you know, his, his posing routines were always very like artsy and he used to almost like dance on stage and he'd kind of do like the robot almost in a way with his muscles and kind of mm-hmm. do these, these weird like posing routines, but his was all about art form. And you know, the way he would, the way he would train in the gym was all about, you know, isolating very specific muscles and he wouldn't use overly heavy weights very often. And he'd, he was very controlled and calm and everything was about his mind body connection. And they used to talk so much about the mind muscle connection and focus focusing on the muscle you're training and then i would see other bodybuilders um people like dorian yates from back in the day and you just i suppose the most of the other bodybuilders where everything was about or there was a what was his name um i think it was i forget his name now but yeah anyway other bodybuilders who were it was all about just putting on as much weight as possible and just pushing yourself till you were you were half dead every single session no matter what and just going all out and just um yeah you're getting so ingrained in it and so much i think that was the majority of them mm-hmm. um and i and i you know again someone who felt like he wasn't um masculine enough and he was using the gym as a way to kind of promote my masculinity and myself and with other people i saw these these guys you know screaming and putting on as much weight as possible and you know pushing their body till they were you know bleeding or passing out or throwing up or whatever i saw that as this like you know this is the goal and that's what i turned towards was trying to push myself to these extreme limits and um, but you know but i wonder if if i did go down the kai green route more and you know focus on that mind muscle connection maybe that's a you know a, a i guess the term i would use healthier um, way of doing that um, I don't know what you both think about that Clara you're you're kind of responding yeah I think definitely it makes it bringing mindfulness into bodybuilding does make it a much more pleasant experience in the long term I think from personal experience I use a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy tools on myself in my last prep um, at times where you know I was diffusing from thoughts of I don't know if I can do this Uh, or I'm really really tired at times where I was trying to adopt a flexible mindset even within something that is pretty rigid Um, and when talking about mindfulness and sort of the what you get into it from an art form I think it's also just the approaching bodybuilding as a self-development tool as something that can enable you to be more aware of your thoughts and feelings be more aware of your body moving and the food that you put into your body and how your body responds and using that as a you know, as, as a springboard towards self-development or as something that can, um, can, the analogy that comes to mind is a bit like stress inoculation, you know, putting yourself in a challenging situation so that you can grow from it. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from just the training aspect, like everything that comes with particularly competitive bodybuilding, um, doing it in a mindful way is just makes it a lot more sustainable. I mean, one of the main things that I got from my first ever bodybuilding prep I learned how to eat mindfully because um, I had kind of gotten into the gym at that point, started working with a coach after experiencing a lot of binge restrict. And when it came to dieting for a competition prep, I was like, right, if this gets dangerous for me at any point, I'm plug, you know, I'm pulling the plug on it. But 
one of the things that it forced me to do was to learn how to eat mindfully. So I would sit with like my one square of dark chocolate and a cup of tea and it would take me 15 minutes to have this piece of chocolate and to have the cup of tea and to, you know, eat mindfully, notice the sensations, like notice my breathing, like relax. And so it wasn't just the bodybuilding prep, it was everything else that came from it. And that's something that I still carry with me now. So there's, I guess it just, it depends. And, you know, everyone is different and 90% of bodybuilders or people who compete as bodybuilders aren't going to be doing that. But for those who do, and if we can encourage those who do compete to, to uptake some of these things, I think it could make a big difference. So, so it's mm. always like focusing on the process. Yeah, exactly. The that. outcome there. Carla, would you mind if I ask, because I'm curious how, have, um, have, have you stopped competing now and how, how, yeah. are, you, how are you feeling about that? And, have you, have you found your perspectives have changed at all since? I mean, it, it's been over a year now, hasn't it? Since yeah, do you they have to do it again? Um, it has changed a lot. So last year was a pretty intense year for me. So coming out of the bodybuilding prep, um, I got married in October last year. So I had a lot of pressure on myself in terms of kind of you know reversing out of my bodybuilding prep um, and kind of different other pressures kind of from life. And, you know, planning a wedding is incredibly stressful. <laughs> it was amazing, but it's just really, really stressful. And so within that, I just kind of got to a point where my workload was too much for me to continue training and spending as much time in the gym as I was. And also because I came off the pill in January last year and hadn't recovered my cycle until January this year, um, it basically was an immediate red flag from April pretty much last year where I went, you know, fuck, <laughs> this has to change. Like, I'm not healthy. I thought I was healthy. And I thought that living this lifestyle, going to the gym, taking care of myself in that way, I thought that was healthy. But clearly, it isn't because I'm not menstruating, I'm not ovulating, and that's not healthy. So I knew from that moment that it was very unlikely that I would compete again. Um, I had to change how I trained. I still have had to change how I train in terms of massively reducing the volume. Um, of my training, I've had to completely change how I eat and how I approach that so that my body gets to a place where it's healthy enough to ovulate and to menstruate. Um, and the more I've moved through that, the more well, I started going to therapy in May for other various reasons. But essentially, I noticed that while I got very good at being a very good bodybuilder, um, to be a good bodybuilder, a competitive bodybuilder, I think to an extent, you have to get good at ignoring your needs. Because when you're tired and you're hungry, you still have to exercise and you still have to restrict your calorie intake. So through therapy, I started to get better at noticing my needs and at honoring my needs. And I don't know if that if I can go back to ignoring them <laughs> again through a bodybuilding competition, if that makes sense. So, you know, realistically, with where my life is at now, with where my career is at now, I don't see myself competing again, um, especially because like by the time I qualify as a, you know, as a chartered psychologist, um, I'll be at a point where I would like to start thinking about starting a family if I can. And again, bodybuilding incompatible with that to the point where like, obviously, if you're not ovulating and you're not menstruating because you're too shredded, um, you know, it's a, it, it's just not worth it. So yeah, it has changed quite a bit. Never say never. I just don't see it ever happening again and I've kind of 
you know, I still work with bodybuilding competitors, but the way that I work with them now is if they want to compete and they want me to prepare them for competition, we have to do psychology. Psychology has to be contracted into how we work together. And I'm not willing to prep anyone without that support alongside it. Oh, so interesting. Thank you for sharing, Clara. So, yeah, so actually taking the, did I, if I understood correctly, taking the pill was, was masking so, so you weren't able to see that yeah that's massively right. yeah like what we were saying before about reading about things like I started reading about hypothalamic amenorrhea you know while I was still on in prep when I was still on the pill and a lot of the things that they were mentioning I was like mm, I I really started to become more like very self-aware of my relationship with exercise and all these things and kind of realizing that I'd never had a point in my life where exercise and weight hadn't been a central piece of it in a healthy or unhealthy way like but it had always been like quite a big part of my life um and coming off the pill I was like right well let's just see where my body's at and like you know the penny dropped when I realized that what I thought was living a healthy life in fact was not healthy at all because you know if you're not if you don't have a period um you know, it just means everything is up a creek. And they say that it should take maximum, maximum three months for your cycle to come back after being on the pill. And it took me 11 and a half months to get my cycle back. Um, and, you know, a lot, a lot of lifestyle changes mm. that were incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, but, you know, in a way, it's almost made me empathizable with my clients to whom I'm asking mm. the opposite. You know, for me, it was I had to massively, massively cut down on my exercise, you know, completely change the way I just approach my days. And that was so hard. But then it allowed me to understand what I ask my clients to do, which is when they go from zero to, you know, initiating exercise. It's the same, same challenge, just in a different context. And it's been really, really eye opening, to be honest. Mm. Mm. thank you for sharing that clara and thank you for asking the question paula um you're going to take my job uh <laughs> um no, that was that was uh yeah really uh interesting and yeah i i, I guess I, I resonate with the whole you know you you saying you you don't you you've started to um kind of honor your your body's needs and and mm. kind of not not fight off them and, and you can't really foresee yourself going back to to ignoring them or kind of fighting against them and I'm kind of the same in that you know as soon as I came out of it and I, I kind of had this revelation of you know oh this is so much better like you know, I, I pr- prefer this so much more and I get other aspects of my life out of it but also just remembering how you know how deeply ingrained I was in it that you know I think if if me back then met me now I would I would feel sorry for like the new me and the fact that I'd be like oh you've lost this like you lost this your ability to fight against these things like you're weaker now like if it and even when you said you know you said yourself that you wouldn't I forget what it was you said but you said like you wouldn't um, be ovulating because you were too I think you, you said the word shredded anyway mm-hmm. and my brain like you know just from the term shredded has so many like you know these like mask like you know masculine like like hardcore is the term mm-hmm. I want to use like connotations of like oh yeah I'm too shredded for that to happen like it no matter what it is my brain just goes that's great like you know, just because that's been so ingrained into me it's like yeah I look back at pictures and like, don't get me wrong, I'm still so, so proud of what I achieved as a competitor. And I'm so proud of like the things that I know that I can do. Um, But 
you know, it's so hard. And, you know, thinking about kind of the position both as an exercise psychologist and as a fitness coach, you know, I'm an exercise psychologist that massively has to, you know, purposefully restrict her exercise because too much of it or the level at which it was before was too much for my body. And so the amount of con- like contradictions, it just felt, it just feels awkward and and just bizarre in terms of you know I was having to go to the gym and time myself and be like right after an hour out doesn't matter how far down the program you're done like you're out you know an hour tops max get out you know wearing my Fitbit um because I like it to tell the time but I had to wear it to make sure that I wasn't doing too many steps just out of habit of going for a walk and going for this and going for that like it was just so bizarre but still the connotation of like being shredded you know that being a positive attribute and still thinking many times and really having to work on separating the you look leaner and therefore you look better and therefore you were healthier than now you know it's it's a bit of a head fuck I mean not a bit it's a massive head fuck (laughs) but in it for the journey and embracing it as I go (laughs) but it's still you oh go on Paula it's all right it's another question so if you want to it's just from an I just wanted to ask from an exercise psychologist viewpoint what Mm -hmm. contradictions I just wanted to ask Clara what because you mentioned when you were saying earlier that one of the things about bodybuilding is that you have to you have to not eat when you're hungry you have to exercise when you're tired but yet on mm-hmm. the other arm, you're saying, you know what I'm going to say, you're saying that you want to promote a healthy relationship with exercise for people, which is exactly not doing that. Mm-hmm. How do you kind of, do, do you feel that conflict or how do you get around yes. that when you're working with clients? Um, when I work with clients. Do you clients, disagree that it's a conflict even? Actually, do I would agree that it's a conflict, 100%. The way that I view it a bit more is sort of similar um, acceptance and commitment therapy. They've got this really nice um, metaphor for values uh, in that they liken your values to uh, the globe of the world. So in a globe, there's no one point in which you can see all the countries at the same time. At some Sometimes if some countries are closer to you, others inevitably have to be further away. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it doesn't mean that the all countries aren't in the world at the same time it's just that some are closer and others are further away at different time points and so as long as we can keep the globe spinning and we're not stuck in one country or one continent then that can be helpful and if someone competing as a bodybuilder helps them move forward in one value um and then we can come back to focusing on continue to develop that value with a healthy relationship with exercise then that's kind of what keeps it moving. It's when we become stuck in, you know, only exercising with the focus of bodybuilding and not for anything else and at the expense of everything else, that's when it becomes problematic. So it's always, always, always being mindful and paying attention to and being aware of the function that exercise in the gym and bodybuilding is serving. Because when it, it can serve the purpose, it can be like a, a way of living out that, you know, let me push to, to see, you know, mm-hmm. where I can take myself to and it can still be helpful and a positive experience. But when that's the only thing that you've got and when, and when all exercise and movement is done, you know, obsessively, compulsively, because you want to regulate how you look, that's when the red flag emerges. So it is a, it's 100% a conflict, but the globe analogy really helps yeah. me make sense of it and that it's not always like that forever. And as long as we've got the flexibility to move through that, and not hold it too tightly and not be too fused with it, 
you know we can develop that that relationship with it I guess no I I get that actually thanks I'm glad I asked that because that's really helpful to understand and I think so yeah what you're saying is it's okay I mean in those situations when you're talking about is that push just before competition I guess it's the same as if I'm training for a Brazilian jiu-jitsu competition where I might really upset and and, you know my focus during that six-week period I might I would be training more than would be optimal to sustain um Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily unhelpful in that, yeah, over that period. What's important is, exactly. yeah, your value of achievement, your value of testing mm-hmm. yourself. But actually, as long as that as, as a whole, whether it's in time or whether it's what else is going on at that moment, isn't isn't everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, that makes sense. Oh, sorry, just dropped my pen if you heard that. <laughs> No, but that, that it kind of it takes me back to one of my other pods that I did with uh, Dr. Amy Aziki, um, when she spoke about the the pillar versus the pyramid, and you know, as long as as long as the, the this diet, the dieting, and the and everything isn't isn't just part of this pillar where you know everything on your life is around looking this way and behaving this way and everything, but it's just part of that pyramid, isn't it? And I suppose you yeah. you lean on that one brick for a while. I guess it's just another analogy of your globe one, isn't it? Yeah. You can lean on that part of the brick for for a bit, but as long as there's the other bricks there, as long as the rest of the globe's on the other side that you can move to, then then you're fine. Um, and yeah. It, it, yeah, I used to always think, you know, there's a question I used to tussle with, and I am going to move on because we're getting close to our to our time. But um, was whether a, a you know, professional bodybuilder could could be like like in like a psychologically like healthy place? And it's it's really difficult because it be, when when because for them their their life is like yeah. their their physique because it's their occupation and it's their it's it's everything for them. So how do they turn it off? But I suppose it comes down to like, you know, when they are in that off season, can they relax somewhat? And I know the old school bodybuilders that I used to listen to, like the Kevin Lavrone and, and different people, like they used to they used to talk about how they'd have, you know, six months. I was I was if people can't tell, I was massively into bodybuilding when I was into it. Um, you know, they used to talk about having six months off after the competition and they just they just chill and they you know, they wouldn't be exercising and you know, and they, they'd come up, they'd even, some of them spoke about coming off steroids and things. And again, that's the other coal kettle of fish that we, we don't have time to unpack. But, you know, there's there's potential things there where there's a bit more, it's that freedom. A lot of the, can you, can you visit that other side of the globe? And maybe that's, maybe that is where the line is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Anyway, I'm going to move us on because we need to, um, because we have to do the final three still for both of you. And also we need to do the devil's advocate, which we've already kind of done, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, For you both, I now play the devil's advocate tune live for people to listen to. So I'm going to play it now. Um, So here we go. It's the devil's advocate. (laughs) Every time I play that, I find it hilarious how shit it is but i still will never change it never ever change it because it's it's beautiful and it's shitness and that's what i like about it um so devil's advocate question today is to some these conversations can sound quite contradictory on the one hand we're saying that dedicating one's life to exercise is a bad thing but on the other hand we're suggesting that people should exercise more and often your jobs are include include helping people to exercise more so aren't we just hypocrites who wants to take this one <laughs> well yeah no i i think um and it's it's something you're always checking yourself about as well because i think once you work in this field like we've all been saying you can't help but 
reflect and, and on your own relationship with exercise and um, what's but I, I think the important thing here is that uh, exercise is incredibly exercise physical activity is incredible incredibly complex and it it is possible it's not about an absolute amount of exercise or what you're doing it's about the meaning behind it and the reasons you're doing it and actually it is possible to be an exercise enthusiast or a healthy athlete or somebody that's doing a lot of movement and activity yet still have a healthy body and a healthy mind so i i think yeah that this they're not necessarily contradictions i think i'm certainly i guess my quest is to help everybody be in that 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 healthy place where exercise is, is a positive is playing a positive role within people's lives. Um, that makes any sense. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. Clara, do you have anything to add to that? No, not really. I, I agree that it's, um, it, it's all about the function. That's what I've written down. You know, it's about the function that exercise and physical activity serve. And that's where that's the difference that makes a difference ultimately for people. And I guess in our role as exercise psychologists, you know, it is to understand the function and it's to understand the the complex relationships and the spider web of, you know, of, of things and terms that link up for that person and to help people shift towards a more um, helpful relationship with movement in general, I guess. Nice. And yeah, I think I, I often say, I think it comes down to the meaning of the exercises and that's what it, it is. And I guess it's similar to what you're saying there, Cora, it's the function. Like what, what's the meaning of it for you? Is is it something that, you know, is it your sole purpose to be doing, to be who you are? Is it, is it the only thing that you would attribute to you being worthy as a human being? Yeah. Um, or are there, or does it serve this function on top of other things? Or does it, you know, help you with your sport? Does it, mm-hmm. you just help relax you? Does it do these other things, but also allows you to have your other aspects of who you are and you know, being a friend, being a family member, being, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what's important. And it's, yeah, that can, that can, I think that meaning can exist on several different levels of exercise. You know, some people will do a lot more exercise and still be able to have that meaning. And some people can do a lot less exercise and still be able to have that meaning and it still play that part. Um, Mm -hmm. And it can move up and down over time. Yeah. Um, Okay. So thank you both um, for being on the pod. I'm going to move on to the final three. Um, We've got about 15 minutes left of time, so we should be fine. Um, I'm going to go Clara and then Paula. So I'm going to go Clara, you first. So first question for the final three is, Mm -hmm. number one is, name a person that inspires you. Okay, so I'm going to go a bit kind of, not rogue, but sort of off topic to an extent. I think last time I mentioned Brene Brown, and she still very much inspires me. Uh, but someone that really has inspired me a lot in the last year, her name is Davinia Tomlinson. Uh, she is a women's finance expert. Uh, she is British. She is black. And she is incredible. And, you know, again, it's completely off topic. But with being self-employed as a psychologist um, and a fitness coach, I had to learn a lot about money and money management. And it's something that I'd never really heard about or learned about and something that I found terrifying and I found this course um, that Davinia was running called Rain Check um, and came across her podcast too which is called Let's Make It Rain and it is so inspiring it's like it's so uplifting 
from a feminist perspective, from like a woman's perspective, from an empowerment perspective. And it's been something that's really given me a lot of drive and fulfillment out with, of course, like exercise in this last year, because that's had to change so much for me. Um, So Divinia Tomlinson, I think she is amazing. And I highly recommend anyone who even if you don't care about money, like it's just it's so fascinating to learn about. It's something so new to me. Um, And yeah, I just think she's great. amazing thank you I, I, and uh, yeah i can resonate with the money stress you know i i literally have like you don't get taught anything about like business or anything and you know yeah, yeah I, I this this is the most embarrassing thing ever but i set my minds up as a limited company because i mm-hmm. thought it sounded cool uh, and that's literally the sole purpose and then i realized that that brings with it a lot of stuff um that yeah. i didn't want to deal with so then i quickly got rid of that um, but that's the yeah. that's the level of education i had is oh if it was called my man's limited that would sound sick so i did that and then i was like oh shit and I had a very yeah. embarrassing conversation with the like tax people being like how do i stop this from being a thing now and then they, they yeah. helped me um but yeah that's what i mean and, and but then even still like the you learn to do the tax stuff like I, i'm set like now that i'm set up as like a the just kind of doing it myself i don't even know what the term is but um yeah so i'll try it like now i'm like you know i i gen like kind of savvy with what i'm doing and like i know what i'm doing but mm-hmm. it's so confusing like it, it but and it's terrifying because you're like if i mess this up like i could get fined i could like I, you know it's, it's really yeah, scary so much shit yeah, yeah. And it's, i mean i always found money and like i don't understand money as a concept to begin with and so just things that i was like ah what do i do like if i'm self-employed and i want to have kids in five years like what am i supposed to do about maternity leave like all those types of weird questions mm. um yeah completely off topic but just so such an important part of like my adult literacy again coming back to that word but yeah Mm. of my like adult education um and she just explained it so well and her voice is just ah it's so soothing it's (laughs) yeah she's amazing (laughs) amazing okay thank you uh paula what about you name a person that inspires you I'm going to check her out clara she sounds like she could be useful for me as well (laughs) yeah (laughs) This is difficult because I was thinking about as we've been preparing for this podcast so long and I'm an avid listener, George, I obviously knew I might be asked these questions. So for ages, I've been thinking, who inspires me? And, and I realized there's so many people in your everyday life who inspire you. And, and I will say both of you inspire me, but I'm like, you know, you'll just sound like I'm so sucking up to you by saying that, but you genuinely do. <laughs> but, but then I came up with who who I, I thought. So, so for me, it's um, John McAvoy. Do you know who he is? Was he that prisoner, the rowing prisoner? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's um just an astonishing story. So so it's kind of on topic, and I had two minds as whether because because he's now uh well he started off as he was basically born into a, a, a subculture where he got involved with gangs very young. Um, ended up I think by the time he was eighteen or something, been done for armed robbery. He was in high security prison for about ten years, I think from into mm-hmm. his twenties, um, all because of the way he'd been groomed and, you know, he, he um he always knew he wanted to be successful. You hear him talk about Lanford's success for him was money. So that's how he got in this situation. But then whilst he was in prison, um I, I think it was triggered by he got a phone call um and one of his really good friends had died. Um and I think it triggered something in him and he'd started he'd been starting exercising in his cell and just starting to learn what his body could do and stuff and basically he ended up setting some world records whilst in prison on the rowing machine 
and he started really rehabilitating himself. Everything gradually moved to an open prison and then got out. And he's now a um, Nike-sponsored athlete. Um, wow. And he, I, I think he, I follow him on Twitter and just everything he writes is so inspirational because he's so thankful for being here. And mm-hmm. he's, why he inspires me is because I discovered him in lockdown and he's evidence that people can change. He's evidence that you can forgive yourself for the past. He's, he's, ever, he's just all about the moment and, you know, thankful to be able to wake up tomorrow. But he's also real. His story is really um, testament to the good that sport can do and, and mm-hmm. healthy movement can do. And he uses his position now to, he does a lot of work um, with schools and with, um, you know, community organisations really, educating and inspiring young people from the kind of area he was from to prevent the same thing them them getting into trouble and yeah no he's if you haven't come across him I'd, I'd urge people to check him out he's got a book called redemption and yeah it, it's really yeah it's someone that has really inspired me I was very excited and because it was in lockdown I discovered him on a podcast I think and I'd, I'd retweeted I'd, I'd tweeted when I'd read his book or something and he retweeted it and I was so excited <laughs> cool <laughs> amazing amazing okay thank you um okay let's move on to the next one so question two of the final three uh, we'll go to clara again um a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time but looking back you know that positives came from it um oh i mean i'm not going to kind of repeat what I said last time I guess like yeah reflecting on last year um in May I had like just a really really bumpy mental health month where um just kind of noticing that I wasn't listening to my needs and just kind of this whole my my life just got like spun upside down essentially is what it felt like um and I stopped training I stopped going to the gym I stopped like you know tracking my food and sort of eating what I had been eating up up until that point just completely changing everything and it was oh, it was really scary it was awful but um in hindsight it was really really great because it kind of helped I, I started going to therapy which has just been incredible like so helpful um and such a good thing to add to my life um now that I've obviously got the you know the funds to be able to afford it obviously um but yeah it was really shit but in hindsight, had that not happened, I don't know if I would have, you know, been able to really go all in kind of after getting married and sort of, you know, stop or completely change my life with as quote unquote relative ease as I did had I not had that kind of happen in May and start going to therapy and all those cogs started moving then. So, yeah. That's a great example. Thank you, Clara. Um, and yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, often the things we go through that are negative do end up kind of teaching us about ourselves and coming out of it and that's that's the reason why i always ask this question so um, yeah, yeah thank you for that example um paula on to you yeah it's really hard isn't it because there's so much in life you often have to hit rock bottom in order for things to change don't you and i'm thinking there's several examples i could probably give in that sense but i'm just going to say but one from when i was a lot younger i think it was about about 18 19 and I was just in a really bad relationship um with he was an alcoholic he was about 10 years older than me an alcoholic um and 
we ended up living, I lived with him for a bit. I'd kind of sacked off university to be with him. <laughs> Not in a good place. Um, yeah. I, and I had a very kind of insecure attachment. I had no self-respect. I kind of knew I didn't want to be with him, but yet there was also something drawing me there. And and we, we actually got in dire financial circumstances as well. I remember at some point where we didn't even have enough money to go out and buy toilet roll. And it was... And and because of the way I was, my parents wouldn't give me any money. And but actually, you know, eventually I I got the guts to to stand up to it and ended up um, leaving him. But I, it also gave me an insight into actually his background and why he was like that. And actually, he you know he wouldn't get any birthday cards on his, but just because it was the type of people he'd been around and stuff. And and it's just given me an appreciation for life because before that, you know, well, I am I'm from quite a privileged background. And I think it that whole experience has given me an appreciation for, yeah, to be to be grateful, I guess, for things that we can very easily take for granted. And, and in terms of empathy and, and connection with, yeah, with the, the different places people are in. So, yeah, it's a long time ago. I hadn't really thought about that before. I was thinking about which but but yeah that that was one example thank you for sharing that paul i think it's it's weird because I, I you know um i feel like I, I haven't spoken to you much about your kind of um life before and it's same with you clara mm-hmm. i suppose but i know you've been on the pod before and we spoke about this kind of thing but you know I've, i i look up to both of you and hearing your yeah you know, again one of the reasons why I, I brought this question in is because i think for me, when I was younger, I used to look up to people so much and think that all this stuff's going on with me was it was so isolating, wasn't what was going through other people. But to hear that, you know, even you two go through shit and, and have come out the other side and it's so inspiring to me. And just hearing that you've got, you know, Paul, I know how successful you are and, how, and the amazing things you've done. And um, just to hear that you've been through something and been in that kind of position where you've been scared and and, you know i'm sure you were very worried at the time of what was going to happen and you've come out of it to the point where you are now and done all the amazing things you've done like it's so inspiring to hear that and yeah so just thank you for sharing that um okay we'll move on to the final one we've only got seven minutes um clara the final question this is the one that um, has changed ever so slightly since you last did the pod um name a phrase or word that changed your life so hard like so 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 hard uh, but I heard this earlier like at the beginning of this year and it says improvement begins with I and I just really really like that um it's kind of given me a real like you know good start to the year in terms of you know improving myself and continuing to show up as my authentic self and continue to work on myself um and understanding that you know I have so much agency in the things that I do but you know if I want to improve anything it has to begin with me and it kind of extends to obviously the role as a coach or the role as a psychologist we're so quick to tend to everyone else and everyone else's needs and uh without you know paying attention to ourselves and you know one thing that last year taught me is that if I keep my putting myself at the bottom of the priorities pile um I end up crying uh, constantly and unable to get out of bed, which is not helpful. So yeah, improvement begins with I is as a big one right now. That's a, such an amazing phrase, Clara. And yeah, I'm glad that you are putting yourself first a bit more. And yeah, you deserve that. So yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing that. That's a great that's a great one to people to to take on. 
Um, Paula, what about you? Yeah, how do you follow that? That is a good one, Clara. But, um, I didn't, yeah, because this used to be something that you'd live by, didn't it, George? Or I had a few, or something like that. But then I yeah. looked carefully, I thought that the wording, that carefully changed your life. Um, I, I think it has to be, it, it's more the con, the concept that is that now is all we have. Um, when mm. I was learning about mindfulness, it just blew my mind because I've, well, I still am a bit, but I, I, I used to be such a worrier. Constantly, my mind was either in the past or the future. And in, I remember learning in the first week or so about it, just, just focusing on, on the present and actually realizing that this is all we have, you know, in, in, in that sense. So, and, and I just remember thinking, oh, my God, is this, is this what life is like for everybody else? and and if I think of what has changed my life since since learning and practicing mindfulness without a doubt it has um yeah made a big impact on me amazing amazing you said you said how do you follow up you followed it up with another fantastic one those are two brilliant phrases um (laughs) thank you both so so much for doing this pod with me it's gone amazingly i feel like we could do another six pods and we'd still have stuff to talk about um how, how did you both find it really really fun really enjoyable i mean i could pick your guys's brains if we were having a coffee we'd have to like spend all day in the coffee shop <laughs> um, to get through everything we want to talk about so really enjoyable thank you so much to both of you yeah maybe we should do that next time the all day coffee shop <laughs> maybe I'm, up, I'm up for yeah. that yeah, no, thanks so much, George. It is an, and Clara. Yeah, no, it's a it's a privilege to be here with you both, and they're always so fascinating. To yeah, two hour, two hours passes them um, so quickly. So I hope we haven't bored everybody listening. But I, I've been fascinated <laughs> by the conversation. Thank you both so so much, and I'm sure. Um, yeah, I've I've definitely not been bored, so I'm sure no one else has either. Um, everyone listening at home, thank you for making it all the way through one of the podcasts again, um, and I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out MayaMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.